Okay, uh, welcome listeners to the uh, Fill in the Pale podcast. My name is Greg Ashman. I'm a teacher, writer, and a researcher based in Australia, and I'm author of the Fill in the Pale uh, blog. I'm very excited to have with me Tom Bennett. Uh, Tom <laughs> is a uh, former teacher, founder of Research Ed, advisor to UK government uh, on school behaviour. Have I got that right? Uh, it sounds grand enough. Go for it. Let, let, let's say it's true. <laughs> so, it's true. so just before just before we get into i mean i've just been on uh twitter uh which you know for uh our sins is uh is somewhere where i occasionally find myself and um one of the things that people have been <laughs> discussing is uh the howlers that school architects make uh when they're designing schools and i i offered um a vignette about when a school i worked in in london uh was rebuilt under the pfi and they put working light switches in the corridors so that the kids yeah. could switch the lights off. Um, have you, I mean, obviously you've been to lots of different schools uh, in School your, school school your there, yeah. role. What, have you seen anything like that? What was the worst howlers you yeah, Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I can offer a vignette of my own. But incidentally, what a great question to start with. <laughs> no social pleasantries, just what do you think of a school architecture? Um, <laughs> You're a math teacher, aren't you? I can tell. Yeah, no, right to the, it. Um, I, I remember, yeah, years ago, probably about, maybe even about the same time as you, Greg, uh, working in, in British education. Um, the school I was in in the east end of London with a lovely big old Victorian pile of a building, it was gorgeous, but it was very impractical. Um, and we had the we, we were one of the last schools to go through the what's called the BSF program, building schools for the future. Loads of money, loads of money thrown at it, schools could completely redevelop themselves. And I, I, at the time, I was like a middle leader, and I was involved in quite a lot of panels uh, to discuss, you know, what the school needed and what, you know, what, what, what the user experience was and so on. And we were all very excited to be part of this enormous multi-million pound project. And then I remember um, speaking, to, uh, speaking to one of the, one of the builders in the pub a few weeks later, and we were just having a, having a jar, and he became quite discreet. And he said, uh, he said, have you been to lots of these meetings? I said, yes, we're very excited. He says, don't be. And I said, why? He says, you'll get exactly what you're given. You know, and, 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 and I said, what do you mean? He, said, he says, all the schools will look the same. And if you, whatever you ask for, you'll get, what you, you'll get what you get. And I didn't understand what he meant until we got to school. And all the, the niceties that we'd asked for had been completely thrown out the window. And we were given classrooms that were, that were exactly too small. Or rather, they were large enough to fit the number of children we had, but only if... You included desks in in a in, in a in a horseshoe fashion, which I detest yeah. more than life itself. You know, it, it yeah. had to be group work. That was the yeah. only way you could put tables in. And secondly, um, they gave us all these. <laughs> I loved it. They gave us these breakout areas where students could work unsupervised, which is fabulous if you're teaching the sons and daughters of Swiss diplomats. Yeah, you know, or the Waltons. But we we had East End kids, and if you give them anywhere which was resembled a nook or a cranny. It's <laughs> not building bombs. Yeah. These are lovely children, you know. Um and and, and and lighting fires and so on. And and so, you know, we ended up just you know, cordoning them off because a lot of the children we sent out just, just used them as, as nooks. So well, that's you have to, Yeah, mean. you have to mitigate it, don't you? Like I remember yeah, one's come back to me now, another because we had to we had these meetings where we had to come with like what was called a specification. So we couldn't say yeah. what the school looked like. Or how big it was. We had to we had to say what it was, what we had to be able to do with it, which is a weird way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. and um, that so, science just, lab. Just, sorry, one last thing. I was just yeah. add. I'm sorry, Greg. You've, you've got <laughs> me on a subject now. I'm not going to get. There was, there was, there was, a, there was a fashion for this in schools for about twenty thirty years, and, and thankfully it's kind of died to death. And that is uh, open plan classrooms and open plan uh, school floors and so on. You know. It, 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 architects got really excited about this, and it's a classic example. It's really brutalism. It's a classic example of an architectural phenomena, which which is uh, consumed by the people who don't generate it. You know, it's you know the, the user experience and the design experience are completely separate, and you yeah. get these classes which are separated by you know notional partitions, which look like kind of you know gossamer, and and, and eventually, teachers, sensible teachers, would just start sincerely partitioning their classrooms using whatever they could use including wardrobes and bookshelves and, and, yeah. book and so on until they eventually just kind of gave up everybody hates them nobody yeah. likes them it's just a terrible terrible idea i'll stop now no well no, the one i'm just reminded of is uh i don't know if you if uh obviously i've, I've been a science teacher as well as a math teacher and one of the things you have to be able to do 
yeah, science lab, you've got to be able to switch the gas off. So there's a gas shut off. So, yeah. you know, kid at the back is on fire. Um, switch the gas off. You know, it's the first thing you do. They teach you. First thing at science teacher training school, switch the gas off. Where's the big button, the big red button? Push the button, switch the gas off. You yeah. do that um, at uh, this school that they rebuilt for us. And the gas yeah. went off in the lab below you as well. Oh. So, yes. And that it took us, yeah, it took us a while to figure really? that out. We were like, why is the gas not working? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the two things were connected. Anyway, so. It didn't really mean you would leave the Bunsen's on thinking the gas had gone off or something. You know, that get, could Well, you could really accidentally, because one of the things kids do, I mean, you and I know that kids are, uh, are angels, but uh, on, on a rare yeah. occasion, what a child might do, accidentally, of course, is open a gas mm -hmm. tap, you know, just to make a hissing sound, just for a bit of a, a laugh. And if oh. you go into a, a, a lab where the gas is switched off and you do that, you, nothing happens. So you might leave it open. Because yes. Or the rascals. Yes. The rascals. Can I just say, I mean, although it, it seemed tangential to begin this conversation, there's a really, really opposite point being made here, which is this extraordinary clash between people who think education is a certain way, or people who think children are a certain way, and the yeah. people who actually have to teach children. And yeah. I think this is a seam which runs like a, like a flaw in a diamond through everything that we do, and certainly a lot of things that you and I have discussed or talked about over the years. Absolutely. Uh, you know, but we can perhaps develop that. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, there are things that we know as teachers, and people say, well, why are you criticizing me for having this opinion? And you're saying, well, you would say that you're not a teacher. Yeah. And it's, it's not really the fact that they're not a teacher. It's more that until you've had the experience, until you've had the kid vomit in your classroom and yeah. you've got 25 other kids watching you and you've got to deal with that, it's actually quite hard. And a lot of the things that we're asked to do seem to make a lot of sense if you're talking about one adult and one child. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when you've got the, the totality of the way that we work is not often thought about i suppose i should have what's traditional at the moment obviously is to talk about how life in lockdown is going and i didn't do that that should have been my my fuzzy preamble shouldn't it? Oh, are I, we in I, lockdown i haven't noticed no i haven't, no. Left, I haven't left this room for six weeks really i'll quit bad i can try um <laughs> to be honest you know i've got to be careful what i say here Greg, because i'm counting my blessings because yeah. i am very 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 fortunate just now in lockdown you know, if you know you can pay your bills for the next three months and you've got a, you've got a wee garden and you're staying with people that you love yeah, and you've got things to do, you know, I'm, I'm doing huge amounts. I'm, I'm finishing off my book just now, for example. You yeah. know, it's, it, there are blessings to be counted in the circumstances. At the same time, there's this weird dichotomy because you're enormously fearful for the lives of the people that you love and you're aware that there's, there's an enormous tragedy going on round about you. So... You know, it, it swings and roundabouts would be a big glib way of expressing it. All, all I can say is I know how lucky I am just now, how may, unlucky many other people aren't. Yeah. So, you know, so it's positive, but with a, a kind of a grey a, a gray context. Yeah, absolutely. We, we're yeah, here in Victoria. We're sort of, we're still, uh, we're, we've just had an easing of restrictions. We've we had, to, for some sort of context, very different to the UK, we had 17. Uh, positive tests uh, yesterday in Victoria, yeah. and so we're thinking about trying. To, yeah, we're trying to ease the lockdown, and we're all. I mean, I'm teaching online. I'm teaching my year 11s and year 12. So that's in the UK. That's year 12 and 13. I'm yeah. teaching them uh, online, and it's it's a good patch, if you know what I mean. It's like sort of it fills the gap. It's better than. It's certainly a lot better than nothing, and it's certainly. Um, you know, the, the sophistication that the technology has reached is, is pretty amazing. But I just want to be back with the kids now. Like things like, you know, yeah. if you want to know where the kids are doing the classwork and you're in the classroom, you just look, you know, oh, right, yeah, yeah, I can see. Yeah. Whereas it's really hard to divine simple things like that. Um, and I, I was never totally convinced that we we're on the verge of a ed tech revolution anyway. But working <laughs> with it, to this level while we've been in lockdown um, and even like making it the best of it and trying to research yeah. the best ways of doing it, read Douglas Mobb's blog and, you know, mm -hmm. trying to find out the best, even then trying doing it the best way, you think well, it's not quite like there's something quite special 
about being in that room with those kids and the absolutely you know i mean i've got to be careful what i say here because i haven't taught properly you know as in, you know, small people for about three years so i'm a complete fraud now but, but what i will say is this is that one of the one of the things i miss tremendously about the job is the immediacy of it the interaction the the, the, the kind of constant ebb and flow of information from ch between children and yourself, the kind of dialogic process. And one of the things I th which I think is, is interesting is, and I'm, 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 I'm normally seen as being hypercritical of, of tech solutions, and it's probably because it's largely true. Um, but I'm not, I'm not anti-tech, you know, that'd be an absurd position to take. Daisy Crystalula has just written a fantastic book about, you know, where tech can meaningfully and very usefully intersect with, with, with teaching, and I advise everyone to read it. Um, but, 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 but you and I both know that a lot of the claims made by the tech industry are, are massively overcooked and, and usually massively undersubstantiated. They tend to be a sales ploy more than anything else. Um, you know, we all remember the great interactive whiteboard fiasco <laughs> for the last you know, 15, 20 years. Billions and billions of pounds yeah. of dollars invested in it. Um, so, but, 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 but one of the things that I think has been quite clear out of this period is the whole world has been, I mean, the world, you can't, you can't dispute this, the whole world has been involved in this enormous, th at least three month experiment in distance learning using tech solutions. Now, a lot of people are trying to reinvent the wheel and a lot of people are just clutching their way through it and grasping at straws. But there's also a lot of very, very intelligent, wise and sensible people who are thinking about how should we do this best and what are the, what are the pros and what are the cons. There are definitely pros, there are definitely cons, and there are definitely circumstances in which tech is a fantastic device. I mean, for instance, right now, it's the only way to teach practically. So therefore, it's vital and therefore it's very, very useful. But, 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 where you design it from scratch, you know, is this the system you would yeah. decide would be the best way of delivering or achieving some kind of form of education? And the answer is no. No. You know, I'm not saying it would necessarily be the Agora, <laughs> you know, that you, you would teach it using the Socratic method or something. But but it certainly wouldn't be, you know, let's have 15 kids on a Zoom live lesson in, no. an in a synchronous environment or even an asynchronous environment. You, that, that wouldn't be your dream come true. No, and I, I always seem to, uh, I've repeatedly got involved in it for, just through happenstance. So in 2008, I got a job as deputy head in, in London. And one of the things I had to do was introduce this virtual learning environment called Fronter. And mm. from then on, yeah, from then on, I've, I've, I've repeatedly found myself in a position of, of, of this, having to try and do something with the tech. And the most frustrating thing of all is you always ask the people, well, can it do this absolutely vital thing that it needs to be able to do um, for it to be really useful? And they say, well, it can't yet, but that's in the next update. Mm. And then the next update never happens. And patch, stuck, yeah. yeah, and you're stuck with this thing, which with this big flaw in it, like the, the, like you, you have to, you can't upload the thing to the class. You've got to upload it to this other place, and then you've got to copy it across. The, and and again, it, it's almost it's like the light switches. It's like the uh, the open plan classrooms. The the people who design it. It, they uh, maybe they do talk to some of them are teachers, but maybe they forget yeah. they don't quite appreciate exactly how we're going to use it and we're going to interact with it and what we're going to need to do with it. Yeah, I mean the interactive whiteboard is, is something I keep returning to because it was just massive. Everyone seems to have kind of conveniently forgotten about it. You know, but I remember when, when I was teaching, when I was training to teach. I say training to teach. I'm, I'm making rabbit fingers here. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it was it was practically you know, outlined as being mandatory for us to use interactive whiteboards and and if we weren't using it in every lesson, then why not? You know, why weren't you getting children up to the front of the, the board pressing buttons and then sitting down again? I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that? I remember walking to the, one of my first schools and they had an interactive whiteboard, but it wasn't working. Yeah. <laughs> and I stepped next door and I said to the teacher, oh, but whiteboard's not working. He said, yeah, it's been down for a few weeks. I went, all right, okay, so, <laughs> so have we got a board? No, we don't have a board. You know, so I ended up having to kind of draw things in the sand or in the sky. You know, and it was that kind of experience. I remember thinking, this isn't this isn't living the dream anymore. And you know, this has been designed by somebody who's thinking about optimal circumstances. But I'm dealing with children who I can't ask to leave their desk quite a lot because they're a bit army, yeah. uh, and they don't want to learn certainly, and 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 therefore I'm screwed. Yeah. So I don't know if I can say screw it in a podcast. So, you know, so I think the IWB thing is, is just huge. And now I see things like, for instance, Glasgow. I don't know if you read Glasgow District Council that's six months ago. Glasgow in Scotland for... for, for oh, it's for, just it's the iPad. Years. Yeah, the iPad thing. They've spent about £800 million. Now, 
you know, I don't know if Glasgow suddenly become incredibly wealthy since I yeah. left, but this just this just sounds like you know an enormous white elephant waiting to be you know dead. Sounds like the sort of thing people would have done in two thousand and five as well. It is. We're parting like it's two thousand and five, <laughs> and and yet once again there seems to be this endless cycle of people thinking about education for the first time as if they've never thought about it before, and they cut, they always come up with the same wrong answers, and yeah. it's usually. You know the progressive dream of the late 19th century it's usually group work and independent work and project work and, and flip lessons and all the rest of it and you just think my god we've been discussing this for a century now why are people still making the same mistakes and the answer is because you know anyone everyone with an opinion in education is allowed to have a punt at it i, I remember when because uh, i think my teaching career predates yours slightly because you had a career beforehand um, and I just you went, career, you know, a job. <laughs> I went straight into to teaching pretty much. And I remember when the interactive workloads first came in, we had one in our school. And I thought it was quite good. And I would book the room to use it because you'd write stuff. <laughs> I would book the IWB. <laughs> I, I would. And because you could write on it and then it would save it. And then the stuff you'd written. Yeah. In those days, I just used to write on the board. I didn't like have like, PowerPoints or things with all my notes worked out on the yeah. right on the book, and you'd write on it, you'd save it, and then kids would go, they could look it up, they could go on the thing, they could look it up. So it, it was you an age. Must have been really good if you had something worth saving yeah. on your board. <laughs> my God, what were you writing down? What, 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 what words of genius were you writing down? I usually well, write down three words in a sentence. Well, it's quite good if you're doing maths and physics. It's hard to type that stuff, so you can write it with your pen, and it saves it, which is which is pretty good. But then I like it. But then I, you know, they became ubiquitous everywhere. I remember watching, I tell you, I remember watching the, um, and this, this is a bit of a somber map. We all gathered in a science lab with the interactive whiteboard on, watching the aftermath of the 2005 terrorist attacks in London and wondering right. what we, how we were going to get our kids home, what we were going to do. And I remember watching that on an interactive whiteboard. They were everywhere. And then I got to Australia and the school I'm in now, which I've been in ever since. And they had like two interactive whiteboards. It didn't work. They just used them as projectors. And just like you were saying, I was like, oh, how, how does this work? Yeah. But um, I've got quite used to, you, you just, what you do, you project whatever it is you want to project. And then you use a pen and you write on it with your pen. And then you rub it off again with a board rub and it works fine. <laughs> I'm not convinced, Ashman. And you're not going to convince me at this distance, if I'm honest. <laughs> Listen, I think, I think my point with this is the same thing I would say with, with most tools that we'd use in education, which is, yeah. If you love it and you're really good at working with it, and most importantly, you do see an impact with the children because of it, yeah. then you know, then fill your boots. And I know, and funnily enough, I know math teachers and science teachers and, and, and other hermits. Um, you're welcome, <laughs> says an RS teacher, right? Yeah. With most of the low. Um, and I know they were brilliant at it. And, and, I, and it's, from what you're saying, it's probably because that it lends itself much more fluidly and fluently to the types of activities that you're discussing in, in, in your subjects, so it's probably a bit more subject specific. Um, and in that circumstance, I wouldn't say, yeah. oh, you mustn't use it. No. I, think this is, this, I think this creeps into the argument with tech. If I write a pithy comment on Twitter about, oh, you know, God, another tech guru selling us a million pound solution. Yeah. You know, I get tech gurus <laughs> jumping down my throat. Yeah. The ones that I haven't blocked. Um, you know, saying, how dare you, you know, are you saying all tech is bad? You know, the, the classic, you know, argumentative mistakes that people well, make. Well, they're quite thin-skinned, some of the ed tech people. Yeah, I know. You know, it seems to me that people in the future will be very thin-skinned. Yes. The 22nd Definitely. century learners will be very, very thin-skinned. The, say... the jobs that don't exist yet will will involve taking offence at things that... Absolutely, uh... <laughs> yes, indeed. I personally... Listen, I, I remember about three or four years ago, I, I, wrote, I, I wrote a blog. I mean, it wasn't even anything substantial i wrote a blog saying yeah i'm not sure about ipads in the classroom you know i think there's limited usage and blah 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 it was in the sunday papers <laughs> you know government behavior advisor says ban ipads i also god say so i spent a couple of days batting that off on social media but the point is this apple got in touch with me and they invited me to their headquarters in london and yeah. said come in we want to show you what we do with these and i was like oh boy yeah you know, i thought i thought i might get a watch i can something. go and play with the things yeah. Right, so I went in there and I was massively disappointed because we went into the, their office. They were really nice and they said, yeah. look, you know, this school's doing this and this school's doing that. And I said, that's wonderful, but that's not really substantial evidence. I want you to show me that it's worth spending £500 on a tablet, which then requires training and updates and all the rest of it. 
and that it's not going to have these detrimental effects and that it's going to have a measurable impact on student learning that couldn't be achieved in simpler, perhaps more analog ways. And they went, no, we don't have that kind of data. And I went, well, that's fine. We've had a nice afternoon, but that's what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and, and I said to them before I left, um, I'm very disappointed that this place isn't groovier. You know, I thought there'd be, you know, people on Saturdays. Yeah, you know, but, you know, yeah, people sleeping on, on, on tents hanging from the ceiling and stuff like that. Yeah. And they said, oh, you want iTunes, that's floor six. And I was like, oh boy, I've got to see iTunes. <laughs> but I never got to see iTunes. Anyway. Now that is because your the government uh, behaviour advisors, you got invited there and you wrote the blog. And, and, and um, people often call you the government behaviour czar. Now there's one, there's one thing I want to ask you about that. I think it's very important. Do you spell that the T-S-A-R or the C-Z? AR. Well, that's that's very that's that's an interesting point to make. One's Germanic, and one's yes. Cyrillic, I believe. Yes. Uh, so it depends on my mood as to how, how it gets written. But you know, I'm not precious about it. I remember when when my role as as an independent behaviour advisor to the government was announced. About thirty seconds later, I think it was the Guardian newspaper in the UK, a famously right wing publication. Yeah. Um, and 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 they described it immediately as the behaviours are. Hmm. Because there'd been a precedent, because there'd been previous behaviours are before, where like doctors mental Ruby health stars and drugs. Yeah, are. right. You know, but the implication is, of course, that when you say those are that there's some kind of unification of roles, and that you've got power and authority, and you can you can bump heads together really quickly. I have none of this. I'm I'm strictly an advisor. But I remember I was called a czar really really quickly, and I think they spelled it T S. That must have been the Guardian style yeah. guide. And the next day, people were criticising me. For, yeah. for describing myself as a czar, I was like, yeah. I can't win. <laughs> it's a <laughs> mad do, world. What what, what do you do? Hard. What's that? What's that all about? Like for people that don't know who would listen to this who weren't really aren't really familiar with what what that involves. What, what yeah. is your role with with advising the government? What what are you doing in in that in that role? Sure, it's an unsalaried role, you know. So it's, I'm an independent advisor, which which means to say, I say what I bloody well think. Uh, and I use the best evidence I can, and I might be wrong, but it's what I think. Um, and I might add that it's that you know that um, given that it's unsalaried, and, and given that it's independent, it's weird how people conflate me with the government. Yes. And I think purely just through a lack of a, a lack of knowledge, if I can talk about knowledge-rich curriculum, yeah. Um, about how government works in general. Yeah. Um, so I advise them and I write reports for them and I do, in, I do uh, investigations for them and I try to summarise research for them in terms of behaviour. And when they want to do anything which to relevant with behaviour in schools, they consult me. As I say, it's only a consultative role. I don't, get to, I don't have authority to say you mustn't do this and you must do yeah. this. There's zero you know, input in that respect, but there's lots and lots of consultative input, which isn't nothing, and I'm extremely honoured to do it. Because it means you've got the ear of people working in ministerial positions, which is just a fabulous thing. I mean, I couldn't have dreamed of of of, of having that kind of access. But as I say, it's you know, it's it's purely discussional. Um, but we publish reports with the DfE. I'm currently working with the DfE just now to look at how schools will manage behaviour in any um, you know presumptive or hypothetical easing of lockdown. Yeah. So I'm currently writing some advice pieces which will then probably disseminate, be disseminated to, 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 to schools and so on. So, I mean, that's what it involves. It's, I mean, it's great fun. It's a busman's holiday for me. What really struck me, I saw you speak. I actually think this is the first time I saw you speak about behaviour. I've seen you speak a number of times in a research head conference, yeah. and I, I will get yeah. to that later. They all spiel every time. Right? <laughs> but I, it was in Perth. Was it last year? Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was Perth. And you actually gave your talk. You gave a talk about behaviour. and. I'm interested in behaviour, always have been, obviously, most teachers are to a greater or lesser degree because it's the thing that we sort of gets in the way of us doing our yeah. job if we don't have it sorted out. And I've read a lot of, um, you know, uh, classic behaviourist, it's confusing that you can have behaviourist research into behaviour. It took me a while to figure out yeah, yeah. behaviourist research into other things. But um, behaviourist research into behaviour, classroom management, and so at that sort of micro scale, but when I saw you talk, you were talking at a macro scale and it made a lot mm. of sense to me. You were talking about culture and developing a school culture and a positive school culture. And um, I think 
a lot of people don't quite understand that. And certainly the people who would be implacably opposed to, um, you know, uh, your stance on behavior or possibly my stance on behavior uh, would possibly characterize the argument as being about whether you should um, punish kids um, for or not, because if you punish yeah. them, you're, you're, you're assuming that it's something that's within their control, but actually it might be that they're behaving in a particular way because uh, they've, they're expressing this um, need that hasn't been met. And um, actually punishment is, and I wouldn't even, like, you're talking very mild consequences here. It's not, yeah. it's a very odd stretch of the word punishment. Mild consequences for negative behavior is a very small part of what I would uh, implement at a micro classroom level. And it's yes. a very small part of what you're talking about when you're talking about um, school level leadership. You're talking about culture, visibility of leaders, um, that sense of support, that, that um, consistency, mm -hmm. so that, uh, that making it easier to just follow along, using the fact that kids uh, often just want to be like other kids and you leveraging that to help you um, sort any, stop any behavior issues from arising um, before, before they do arise. So like, and yes. discipline control, you know, um, the use of a seat. It's right, beautifully, yes. Um, <laughs> so, and, and I was really struck by that. And that's come, I understand a lot of that thinking has come from you visiting schools as part of some of these reports you've written. Mm. Um, yeah, you've, you've raised lots of really silly points, and you've, you've super summarized, summarized it rather beautifully, which is this, there's a couple of things I should mention. I think teacher training behaviour is still extremely poor, nationally in the UK and internationally. I've not come across a school system that does this very well. Lots of reasons for this, which are too, too, too minute to go into, but, but it's basically, if I may say so, there's been this kind of tremendous uh, 50, 60 year slow in education where people have assumed that students will behave well if the lesson is planned beautifully. You know, it's a pedagogical solution, um, which is a mistake. And, uh, you know, I, I famously remind people I got a 45 minute behavior lecture yeah. about dealing with behavior in classrooms. And, you know, we were still terrified at the end of it. We were none the wiser. And you're expected to learn by osmosis in the classroom. People will say, oh, you'll pick up as you go along. Well, what if you don't? What if you're rubbish at it? What if your school creates an environment that's not conducive to learning? We wouldn't train anybody like this. You wouldn't train an airline pilot like this. You wouldn't train a heart surgeon. You know, build it while you're flying. Good luck as you go along. But it's also, it's logically inconsistent because if you believe that kids have got these needs, say they've come from an abusive family in the morning, then how are you possibly expecting teachers to address that through a funky, well-thought-out lesson? Relationships, Greg. Relationships. Right. Okay. It's not, not about relationships, but the problem with the word relationships is it's a weasel term. It could mean anything to anybody. It is about relationships, but how do you build relationships? And the thing is, we do know stuff about that. And there's, yeah. you know, there's a fair bit of research there, some of which is behaviorist. Now, this is the interesting thing. People talk about sanctions and rewards, and sometimes they mischaracterize my approach as being all about sanctions and rewards. The reason why they mischaracterize it is because they don't know what it is. Uh, I don't blame them. I mean, why should they? But I find it weird that people then say, oh, Ben, it's all about punishment, when, you know, I've never said this. Secondly, what I would su suggest is that sanctions and awards are part of a healthy behaviour management system, but only part of it. In the same way that, you know, there may be mortar in a, in a, in a house's construction, but a house isn't made of mortar. You know, it's something which is, which is an important part of it, but it's not necessarily the majority or even something which is most prominent. And in fact, rather than, I certainly never use the word punishments because of the baggage that's attached to it. I frequently use the word sanctions and sometimes I use the word uh, deterrence, simply because um, human beings act at an individual level and at, and at a group level. You know, we've, we've, got, we've got internal motivations, we've got desires and so on, but we also look at the people around about us, more massively influenced by the people around about us. And the, the sense of what's normal behavior is, is a massive gravity, a massive magnetic pull on children's behavior. You know, people like to conform. And that mm. sense of conformity is something that people often don't talk about. I think people like, you know, think it means that we're just like slavish ants or something, not at all. But we do like to fit in. And the reason yeah. we like to fit in is, for, is for, for reasons that many people would probably agree with, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever, you know, yeah. which I know that Maslow's hierarchy is not without its critics and for many good reasons. But it's a reasonably good description 
certainly up to the up to near the top of the pyramid of the things that motivate us and so i try to look at behavior in terms of what motivates people to behave the way they do and a lot of it is about obviously safety security fitting in being valued by others doing meaningful work and all the rest of it but basically feeling valuable as a person and a lot of children who don't get valued at home will look to their peers at school to fit in to conform and to achieve that sense of communal yeah. uh, your approval so it's 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 almost logical for children to misbehave if they're in circumstances where misbehaving will reward them yes and we want to try to create and this is perhaps a more behaviorist approach this is we want to create circumstances environments where it's easier to behave and harder to misbehave and the best way to do this isn't just by punishing and rewarding them although that counts it's by teaching them habituating them into behaviors which they may have found difficult beforehand so a lot of that's going to be teaching them how to focus for more than five minutes teaching them how to line up if you want to line up teach them how to start a book teach them how to ask a question or answer a question teach them what to do when they need to go to the toilet doug lamov talked about this a lot it's about the micro behaviors and a lot of children come from circumstances where they're not fortunate enough to have been exposed to masses of social or cultural capital where these types of things are normal. If you've got a four-year-old that's come from a middle-class family where they've been drenched in literacy and numeracy and say please and thank you and wait your turn and here's how to share, here's how to be kind. And that child comes to school with a massive social advantage because they know how to do all the wee micro behaviours that makes them successful as students. Students who don't come from the circumstances, it's not their fault but they may have come from circumstances where they lack gateway skills like literacy and numeracy, but also gateway social skills like being patient, waiting their turn, sharing, being kind, and so on. And these children will struggle, and we label them as bad. And I'm not saying that moral terms like I don't have any utility, but what I'm suggesting is we are where we are. And with children like that, the best way to get good behaviour, all children in fact, isn't just by punishing them and rewarding them back on and off the table. It's by teaching them the behaviours that will help them to succeed. And I mean teaching behaviours, not telling them the behaviours. Yeah. If you want somebody to learn how to drive, you don't give them a car, not teach them how to drive, and then say, there you go, good luck, work out for yourself, and every time you crash, we'll give you a fine. Yeah. And that's what some people think that the sanction and reward cycle is like. And if, you, if that's all you've got in your clip, then yes, you're going to do really badly with most kids. Yeah. Because the, the, the behaviourist approach, the pure behaviourist approach, is nowhere near enough to motivate and, and, and entice and to help and support children into behaving. So my approach is incredibly supportive because what we're focusing on is teaching great behavior, habituating them into routines and norms, and then substantiating those routines and norms by putting boundaries up. And do, those boundaries are going to need to have mild deterrence and mild rewards, just as a way of nudging them back on and off the table. I know I've ranted a bit, but I want to say just one last thing about behaviorism. Skinner himself, the Lord God Skinner himself didn't think that the behaviors approach and certainly punishments were a particularly good way of helping children to behave well because he knew that, 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 that sanctions and rewards tend to, tend to be at best a short-term motivator. My point is this, is that we acknowledge that and we accept that they are short-term motivators and that there are other long-term motivators we can use, like making a child feel valued, like telling them that they matter to you and showing it by demonstrating it by teaching them well through effective pedagogy, by teaching them the routines that will help them to be socially successful in a classroom and by helping them to understand what the norms of the school are. These are ways of motivating people because that, that taste of success is often addictive once you know how to do something. And that's how you achieve what I guess gamers would call flow in terms of your behavioral success at schools. So we acknowledge the deficits and the weaknesses of behaviorism while also using it as part of a magazine of strategies that help children to behave because children are complex and you're going to have to do lots of things to achieve different behaviors. Yeah, I think I, 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 I don't disagree. I totally went to the bathroom when I was saying all that. I, do no, no, I don't disagree with anything you've said. Apart from, I wonder oh. whether uh, you've, you've actually made the mistake of slightly mischaracterizing behaviorism. If you talk to someone like Kevin Wellbull, he would say that it's not just um, punishment and reward. A yeah. bigger part is antecedent yeah, 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 yeah. control. Creating circumstances where yeah. it's easier to be. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and, and some of that is about teaching the right behaviours. Other things are like when I was a, a green uh, science teacher, do a, a, an experiment, right kids, go and get your equipment off the trolley. They all crowd around one trolley. This is not good. 
I learned through trial and error to scatter the equipment out around the room so they go to different places to get it back. Mm. Those sorts of things are also come into the, uh, and that's not really just teaching, that's just a, how I'm arranging things. I'm trying to yeah. design out the opportunities. I'm not going to put light switches in the corridor that the kids can switch on and off, and then I'm going to have a problem. Light switches. Those yeah. light switches really got to you, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> that really got under your skin, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Two o'clock in the morning, sometimes I wake up and there. Oh, yeah, the yeah, light yeah. switches, yeah. the light switches. Um, no, I think <laughs> I think there is a bit of a misunderstanding um, about what what different people are about. I think it's so um, emotive for some people, like a lot of the people yeah. who will uh, react to me when I talk about behavior. And often I feel reacting to something that I haven't actually said, um, often come from a position where they're the parent of a child who has a very particular set of circumstances, maybe a, a disorder or a disability, and they have actually had a pretty uh, rough experience in the school system because the school system hasn't really been able to recognize that kid's needs, deal with that kid at an individual level, and have just um, resorted to sanctions. And so they will see me talking about behavior and think that that's what I'm I'm advocating yeah. for the system that mm. has you know mishandled their their child which I don't think I am uh, and I certainly don't think you are but I think that's where some of the heat that you get in this I mean I get more mm. heat uh, when I write about that issue than pretty much any other whereas what I'm trying to achieve is classrooms in which all kids can learn and as you sort of alluded to there, the theory of motivation that what's motivating is getting better at something. So if you're in a classroom and yeah. the constraints of Absolutely. having to uh, behave in a certain way to satisfy your peers are taken away and you can engage in the work and you can get better at the work. Someone's taught you to read, that's a good start. So you, you can read, you can engage in work, you get better at the work, you get that sense of accomplishment, then, then that is motivating and that sets up yeah. the virtuous circle. Um, so... Uh, it's very difficult to expect, it's very unreasonable to expect somebody to persist for long at something in which they're not enjoying. Yeah. Now that doesn't, now that doesn't mean lessons have to be fun. You know, this is, this is the important caveat. Um, I, I think that education should be satisfying, not, not pleasant. Yeah. And satisfaction is something very different. And, and satisfaction, this is something Aristotle talked about, this sense that um, you could look back on something and realize it was satisfying rather than enjoy it at the time. Yeah. And it may be, for example, like, you know, you go for a jog at six o'clock in the morning, as I frequently do, and you might not think, you might think, oh, this is really hard, but you never regret it because it's yeah. satisfying, it's rewarding, like being a father or something, you know, you, it's, it's fun sometimes and sometimes not, but it's always, well, usually satisfying. Yeah. Um, and I want children to learn to appreciate that, that things, you'll struggle with things and practice and practice and practice. And I think that, but if you, but because behavior training is so poor and because the conversation about behavior is quite immature, people instantly revert very quickly back to their kind of fallback default concepts about what we mean in education. So if I talk about behavior in classrooms, people instantly start thinking, you know, to their own experiences, and that might be corporal punishment or maybe in a you know, particularly abusive teacher or something like that. And instantly, this, this is the frame in which they're thinking about behaviour. But as I'm thinking about behaviour, I'm thinking about everything a child does and everything a staff member does. And that includes how you speak to children, how you conduct yourself in a corridor, how you dress, everything. Everything's you know, everything physically expressed is behaviour. That's behaviour management. And I, and I think that once we start to think of it as that, we see that behaviour, I mean, this is my strong view, Behavior is, is absolutely axiomatic when it comes to anything you want to achieve with a school, any success you want to achieve with a school, whether it be their safety, civility, dignity, calm, improving their citizenship skills and so on, education. All of these are facilitated by better behavior, the sense of knowing how to behave in order to flourish. And that may be something simple like waiting your turn. And, and if, we, if we can't have a mature discussion about it, what happens is, what made it happen to you certainly happened to me. You sort of have to figure it out for yourself on the job. You get workarounds. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you find ways of coping. They're not optimal, um, and you don't do the best job you could have done if you'd known um, the, if you could have drawn from the collective wisdom rather than having to sort of figure things out, look at a few teachers around you, and figure yeah. it out that way. I find um, because I mean I. I, I you know, through research, and, and extremely animated and interested about the greater 
and the better use of edu- uh, of evidence in education. But one of the things I find about behaviour is there's 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 lots and lots of research about behaviour, but some of it's very bad, some of it's scrappy, some of it's hard to replicate, some of it is is by design difficult to transmit, and so on. Um, and because of this, perhaps slightly more variegated, slightly patchier landscape of, of high quality educational behavioural research, we, we we find that people can really can say anything, and somebody will say, "Yeah, that sounds good." I mean, a story I always tell is in the I, I repeat this a lot, but I'll say it again because I like it. In the first week of my teaching, I remember somebody said to me, I hear you've got a really difficult class. And I said, yeah, I don't know what to do with them. And he said, have you tried putting the, the worst behaved child in, in charge of the class? And I said, no, I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that because it sounds like a terrible idea. You know, and so I did. And I put this girl called Katie. I, she's probably got a grandmother by now or something. <laughs> she put her in charge of the class and she was awful. She just did a Shrek impression for about 25 minutes. And I sat at the back, you know, exploding with humiliation. And a boy at the back said to me, sir, what are you doing? And I said, I've got no idea. <laughs> and I went to the guy afterwards and I said, oh, that, was, that, that did not go well. And he said, oh, really? I said, yeah, what happened when you tried it? He said, oh, I've never tried it. I just thought it sounded like a nice idea. <laughs> you know? And that's behaviour. That's yeah. behaviour. People can say anything and go, give it a try. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Enough. Enough. That yeah. People have done this before. We've been teaching for a while. We've been yeah. managing behaviour for a while. I know when I used to work in nightclubs, bouncers on the front door of my clubs had had more training in how to manage people's behaviour than, than I had as a teacher. Yeah. You know, if you speak to police officers, they get quite a bit of training in managing people's behaviour because you don't want to get punched in the face. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the, the, the subtle art of speaking to people in a way that doesn't, for instance, rile them is an incredibly important thing. De-escalation, invisible ladders of consequences. Uh, you know, framing questions positively, avoiding drawing attention to misbehaviour. There's loads of things we can teach teachers, which they will stumble a bit, stumble with a bit at first, but gradually they'll become assimilated. And people's teaching experience and therefore students' learning experiences would be massively improved by teaching this type of axiomatic basic stuff at the beginning of their careers, as opposed to, good luck, I hope you survive. Yeah. Absolutely. Now you mentioned research, Ed. So um, I may I have want, done. Yeah, I want to ask you how that came to be. Like, was it? Um, did uh, Michael Gove ring you up on the bat phone and say, yes. "Could uh, you please? I've got some shadow figures here with me, and we There's would like to dollars here." Yes. Yeah. Is that how it happened? Yeah, pretty much. It was the, the Illuminati got in touch with me one day uh, and said, "If you sell us your soul." You know, as long as you corrupt, corrupt the education system. Right, it's, it's, it, here's the origin story, yeah. as, as I like to describe it. Um, I was a teacher in the East End of London, and I was a blogger and a tweeter. That was, you know, that's pretty much it. I wrote a bit for the Times Educational Supplement, uh, which I loved. And I was sitting up one night watching... Setting the agenda. Setting the agenda. Yeah, I was setting the agenda. And I was sitting up one night watching uh, G.I. Joe, which is... a which is a fine movie. I mean, uh, the, the sequel is not so great, but the first one was good. And I was involved in a Twitter conversation between uh, Ben Goldacre, who's a fantastic science communicator and doctor in the UK, and, and, and Sam Friedman, who at that point was an advisor to, to one of the government ministers. And they were having a conversation about how the, there should be an evidence-informed conference. I think by this point I'd written a book called Teacher Proof, uh, which was about my kind of forays into evidence and education. I'll be honest, it wasn't very good. Um, but Listen, I loved it. But it was written at a time when nobody was writing books about this type of stuff, when yeah. no teachers were writing books about this type of stuff. So it's a very, very, very flawed book. You know, there's many things there. I go, oh, God, I can't believe I said that. But it was an honest map or sketch of where I was at the time, and maybe even where education was, when people were starting to think, hang on, Maybe we should start thinking about research. I used to read ridiculous reports in the news about, you know, the trips to teacher scheme reduces behaviour problems by 50%. I'd kind of go, how do you know that? And I'd find out that they don't really know that. And it's just a press release that says that with a quote as evidence. And I thought, this can't be right. You know, I smelled a rat. And, and I don't have a scientific background. I've got, my degree is in philosophy because that's where the big bucks are. And, um, you know, so I know a wee bit about the scientific method, and I know about, about epistemology, and I know, as, as Richard Feynman famously said, how hard it is to say that you know something. Yeah. 
And yet I would see people in education making these enormous pronouncements all the time, usually in the press and sometimes in schools. So I wrote this book, Teacher Proof. I was involved in this Twitter conversation. Ben Goldacre said, oh, we need to have a conference where teachers talk about this. And I think Sam Friedman it was said, oh, you know, you should, Tom Bennett should do this. That's it. He, they were literally just shooting the breeze. <laughs> you know, this wasn't a government invitation. And I said, you know what, that's a brilliant idea. I quite fancy doing that. I then put a tweet out about 10 minutes later saying, listen, does anyone help me, you know, put this together? Which was, a, my, it was my kids from fame moment. Mm. And I can't mm. think of somebody less appropriate to run this type of event or organization, but, but you know, cometh the, <laughs> cometh the hour, cometh the man. Um, <laughs> you know, so some have, some have uh, averageness thrust upon them. And I, uh, I was up to three o'clock in the morning answering tweets and emails from people saying, let's do it. Yeah. You know, I, I, had, I had offers of, of, of venues and people wanted to speak and people wanted to give a wee bit of cash to seed fund it and people wanted to design the logo and people wanted to print the logo. And I was like, oh God, this, is, this has become something. Yeah. I went to school the next day and emails kept flooding in. So I, so I asked Helen O'Shea after about a week, please help me. <laughs> you know, we started a Twitter account. It got like 20,000 followers in a week or something ridiculous like that. And so I guess we had to do it. We put on the event, it sold out in about you know, 10 minutes. I think it was 450 people. And I thought that would be it. I thought that you know, getting people under one roof to talk about educational research, you know, how much, how much mileage is there in that? But after the event, people kept saying, when's the next one, when's the next one? And, and weirdly enough, that, that month, we got a request from some, some people in Australia who said, you know, we'd love you to come over and do one. I thought, how is this, how is this happening? And it wasn't you. No. You bastard. So, um, you know, and the whole point was, I thought it'd be really neat to get people together, talking about research and education, but also talking about their experience of research. So if you're a teacher, you could come along and talk about how difficult you found it to access research, for example. And if you're a TA, you could do the same. If you're a researcher, you could talk about your research. If you were a budget holder, or if you were involved in a think tank, you could talk about the research you'd come across. The point was, it was meant to be coming at things from different angles and have lots of different voices under one roof. And normally what you get is lots of researchers and academics, ERA, BERA, that type of thing. Or you get teachers having their own conferences, but there was very little um, you know, mixing of these, these communities. Sharing of the love. The ecosystem to come together, you know. Sorry? There was very little sharing of the love at that point. And you well, brought you, the love. Yeah, I mean, you I brought mean, the love. I, I remember speaking to somebody from a, a well-known uh, British Educational Research Association, um, whom I would name. <laughs> acronymically but they said to me why do we want to speak to teachers and I thought that's really bizarre now at one level I get it because I believe in knowledge for its own sake and I believe in research for its own sake the love of knowledge is sufficient as an impulse to learn and, and, and when academics publish for academics you know, they're not necessarily having to speak to teachers they're talking to one another and again I perfectly understand that part of the ecosystem but at some, t at some point, it cannot be solipsistic. <laughs> at some point, you have to say, this needs to somehow map onto the school experience. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. we are literally just talking to each other, which is fine. But don't ask for government money. And don't ask anyone to listen to you. Yeah, and, well... You know, yeah, I don't know what you think that. I think that, that's you, Blue Skies research, there's a lot to be said for it, but I do. Absolutely, yeah. But in, in education departments, a lot of the Blue Skies research, I, I'm not 100% convinced of its value uh, in its own right or and it certainly doesn't have anything that's applicable in the classroom so it's one of these yeah i'm, I'm yeah. not I, th I think we probably it it would be well served by being a bit more connected to teachers given that it is really an applied area education um, yeah. and that we do know quite a bit maybe it's some of it's tacit maybe some of it is not something we can articulate particularly well but we do know yeah. a little bit about what Go, what we actually when we're in the classroom what that looks like and what that feels like so yeah getting that I connection remember. to to i mean i remember the first time i met you would have been at research ed in sydney in 2015 when you yes yeah. so we organized it together and the first time we actually met was yeah. on the day itself yeah and um that was for me that was uh, astonishing because just as you said, you've got the researchers over there and you've got the teachers over there, and there's not much impact. Maybe there's a little bit mediated by civil servants coming up with yeah, yeah, yeah. plans. 
and just to talk and listen to researchers. And I remember just getting into a conversation with um, Pam Snow, who's a, a professor of speech. Fabulous person. Fabulous. And, and it was... Uh, again, it was a real sense of freedom, oddly, that it kind of, it brought about that that we could a flatness that we could just interact yeah. in this way, which I wasn't convinced was possible. Have you noticed? I mean, obviously, you've been to Australia a few times now and, and run research. And then you've been all over. Not the enough, Greg. Not enough. <laughs> have you? Do you have any observations on maybe how the education landscape in Australia differs from from the UK? My. <laughs> It's much better, Greg. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll be careful what I say, but only because it's a natural caution of somebody who is not, you know, an expert or 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 native speaker of the culture. Of the, of things that happen. I can only I can only talk as a witness, an observer, and a tourist of that. Which is that I remember when we started doing research out in Australia, there wasn't much resistance because we were so small. Yeah. It was kind of like, you know, who are you? Um, and I met some fascinating, really, really interesting people that I, that I still count very much as, as friends and colleagues. Um, the second one, we started to see a wee bit of pushback because, and it's weird because we only had about 150, 200 people. I mean, yeah, they, they were tiny. They were, yeah. Tiny, tiny conferences. Yeah. The conference is going on every day in March in Australia. Yeah. Or, or when, sorry, I don't know when your conference season is, I keep forgetting. Um, you know, with a thousand people. Yeah, and they're, they're they're backed by thousands. Of, we had no money. If you, I mean, I paid for my own flight to come over, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and paid for my hotel and paid for my, you know, which is great. I loved it. It was a, a labor of love, uh, and it was a massive loss maker. But we thought it was important to, to to try to put it on. And what 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 I've noticed is that resistance started to increase as people started to notice us. And the landscape, and if I'm honest, I think this is a very common thing about the, the educational ecosystem internationally, is that there are lots and lots of priesthoods and gatekeepers um, of, of people who are not used to having their cheese moved a great deal, yeah. who are used to being listened to, who are used to getting the press interviews, and who are used to being quoted and, and consulted. And all of a sudden, there were these kind of upstart rapscallions from nowhere coming along saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if, 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 if that person could have a platform and then they could speak to teachers and teachers could question them and debate with them. And this seemed to threaten people. Yeah. And there was an enormous pushback. And I think the basic principle of what, what we're trying to do is, 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 is absolutely, you know, I hate to say it, absolutely virtuous. I think, you know, getting teachers a platform and a vehicle to speak about the experience of, 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 of evidence and getting researchers and academics a direct line with these people in a place where they could speak and share ideas. And there's people like, for example, Paul Kirchner, you know, from, from the Netherlands, American Netherlands. Of the famous Kirchner Swell O'Clock paper. Kirchner Swell O'Clock, right. Who, um, who just embraces us so much, Daniel Willingham. You know, some of the people who frequently, well, it's John Sweller, you know, who really embrace this and are very, very happy to talk to people because they're happy to be critiqued. They're happy to discuss with end users, they're happy to have what they say exposed to the brittle cold of the classroom. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you know, and that's that's a brilliant and beautiful thing. A lot of the criticism we've had with research ed has been, to my mind, completely um, based on ad hominems and, and, and personality politics and so on. The sense of the, people say things like, oh, why are teachers talking about education research? You know, because we're the bloody end users. Yeah, you know yeah. we're the ones that have to suffer bad research. Yeah, why not? Yeah, and 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 you know I, I can't believe you're letting TAs get speaking and so on, or expecting research to to evidence some kind of you know impact of of, yeah. of their research in the real world. You know, I mean one of the one of the most hilarious criticisms we've had leveled at us is that we're a overtly and or overly positivist organisation, which we seem to you know, we only value what you can weigh and measure. I mean, nonsense, there's plenty of things which are useful as methods and methodologies for scientific debate and education, just as in any other field. But what I find hilarious is that when you're looking at molecular biology or something, you know, or chemistry, you know, if somebody wanted to write a piece of research about how they feel about, you know, <laughs> about carbon chains, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. No. Yeah, an ethnographic study of my experience of, 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 of you know, of uh, fluorine or something. Yeah. yeah. Again, I'm sure it's interesting and relevant at some point, but then I wouldn't then say, 
and therefore you should do this with fluorine. Yes. And I think we find this in, in education, and I think education faculties, sadly, have got a lot to answer for when it comes to this, of, of, of platforming these types of approaches and, 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 and basically equivalating all types of approaches and saying they're all just as good as each other. No, they've all got different strengths and weaknesses. RCTs are not the gold standard necessarily. They're a fantastic standard for one thing, but they've got weaknesses in other areas. Ethnographic studies are very useful and interesting in many ways, but they're tremendously weak when it comes to replicability or scaling up or getting or giving somebody else advice on how to teach a class of you know year 12. So I think these questions about basic scientific methods um, are often shied away from in education debate. And I think it's terribly sad because if we could approach them and embrace them, we'd have much more sensible, mature conversations about the relative merits and strengths of different types of evidence in education. You know, I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, do you think it's the part of it is is about supply so to do i i've done uh, you, you know i'm i'm working on my phd at the moment and i've done some no. quantitative, um, done some quantitative research in a, in a school it's very hard to do uh, the supply of yes. um subjects is is very limited yet um the number of people that want to do uh, research in education and um and the size of education faculties means that there's quite a lot of demand for, for yeah. uh, courses. And, and so I, I think that inevitably leads to things like ethnographic research, possibly just because it's easier to do, because yeah. to, 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 to write about your experiences um, is, is a relatively straightforward thing to do. To actually go out and find subjects and do eth get ethics approvals for those subjects to do studies, it's, it's quite complex. And even if... It, even if everyone was prepared to go to the complexity of doing all that, there just wouldn't be enough of kids to go around or, or undergraduate psychology students to go around. So people wouldn't be able to get their PhD, not enough people would be able to get their PhDs in this area. So I wonder whether the, there's something in the architecture almost, in the design of education faculties that pushes people towards that sort of research. And then once they're in it, they they feel quite um, defensive um, when people come along and say, "Well, actually, we're interested in this." Yeah, yeah. I don't you know. know what, what's I completely agree. Like, I, th I think that I, I mean, from my limited viewpoint, that I go back to the kind of the, the concept of priesthoods and, and gatekeeping. There appears to be now an established culture within many, not all. I mean, some education faculties are you know they're, yes. they're not all equal. Some are fantastic. Some are yes. less fantastic. But some of them do have, seem to rather entrenched sense of, you know, if you're not doing the type of research we like, you won't get your PhD. You know, you won't achieve status. You won't be published. And, 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 and you know, it's, it's a bit like trying to get a, a scientific paper debunking homeopathy published in a homeopathy journal. Yes. You know, you feel, you feel like the, the dice are stacked against you. Yeah, it's and an uphill struggle. Like yeah. This is why <laughs> a lot of people go, you, you, a lot of really good research is done in the, De, um, Department of Special Education because the researchers that can't get their quantitative research approved in the regular education faculty, that's often where they end up. But the, yeah. the, the thing is, the truth is that things that work with kids that have special educational needs are things that just work because kids aren't that um, different. It's kids with special educational needs probably just need an even more intensive yeah. experience of the same thing. But what people then do, of course, is they say, well, this um, phonics intervention program that you've developed for uh, struggling readers, it's just for struggling readers. And it's no relevance to us over here in yeah. regular education faculty whatsoever. And so it's sort of like a double-edged sword. It's a, it's a, a haven for, for researchers to go into, but then it, it kind of limits their ability to influence yeah. more widely. There's, a, there's also another, another uh, syndrome here, which, which is quite symptomatic of what we're discussing, which is that, um, it, it, I, I forget the name of the phenomenon, but when you're designing a plane, you'll know the name for this, Greg, you, you, you're always good for this. When you're designing a plane, you know, if, <laughs> if it doesn't work, oh, hello. Oh, my, my, my son's coming to go to the toilet, so viewers okay. can now be impressed by the, the sound of my, my son having a baby. <laughs> um, you know, if you get your research wrong when it comes to a plane, it crashes. Yeah. Right? You can't be wrong. You can't get the math wrong. You can't get the science wrong. No. Things don't go to the moon. Whereas in education, the, the, the cost of being wrong is, is, is far harder to discern 
Well, it takes 18 years, and then, and then it's debatable what was the cause. You, you could say, well, it was poor instruction in, in the early years in reading that has led to yeah, this educational outcome. But people could say, well, actually, no, this kid has got this condition, which we can tell because they can't read very well. And so it all becomes a bit blurry and a bit hazy by then. And so yeah. you're right, the lines of responsibility are far less easily drawn than they are for the aeronautical engineer that designed a flawed plane. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that wouldn't matter if people weren't basing actual practical strategic policies at school or a national level on this, this type of research. It wouldn't matter. You know, people are writing saying, you know, but this is the opinion of four people. Take it on that basis and I hope it helps you developing anything you want to do yourself. Then people would know and say, yeah, thanks very much. I appreciate it. But the fact is people will, will take, you know, sample sizes of 15 as being somehow evidence that students learn best in front of a computer or something like that. Or without a control group, or with a... a yeah, you know, the whole, the whole game yeah, of, of yeah. mistakes people make. And I just think it's terribly sad because if we could approach that more sensibly, we'd have a mature discussion, and we'd have mature education departments. And as it is, we often we find that, that, that uh, sometimes a lot of stuff coming from education departments is very, very problematic. Hang on one second. Did you wash your hands, Benjamin? Yeah. Good boy. There we go. Benjamin washed his hands. I hope everyone <laughs> listening understands that. That my son um, is hygienic. Can you move this into a train? Yes, I'll move it into a train afterwards. Um, brilliant. Um, look, uh, we, we're nearly out of time. The one thing I did want to ask you about, though, it'd be remiss of me to, not to do so before we go, is the book that you're writing at the moment. Could you just yes. tell us a little bit about that, please? Pluggy, plug, plug. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, I mean, I've written four books. I'm proud of them all, but I wouldn't recommend, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend any of them to you. And, it, and it's because... I very much enjoyed writing them. Some people have enjoyed reading them. Um, some have been quite personal. I wrote one, my very first book was basically a collection of my agony uncle responses from the Times Educational Supplement, responding to people's behavioral problems. You know, they were good at the time, but they were quite basic. I've not really written, um, you know, my magnum opus when it comes to behavior. And I've now been, you know, seriously involved at behavioural advice at the national level and international level for, for several years now. I'm trying to collate that into a practical manual, which is also meant to be a kind of a discursive tool of, of, of what behaviour is in schools. And crucially, how teachers and leaders can try to achieve it. Um, it's focused on teachers. And it goes around the whole kind of the, the, the real houses of as many topics as I possibly think of that teachers will face. But it focuses on uh, the routines and the norms and the motivations for children, but also the things that motivate staff, and also how to deal with appropriate consequences so people get nudged back onto the table. But the point is, it tries to take as complex as possible an approach, a magazine approach, a utility belt approach to behaviour management rather than simply this one thing will work. You know, I even talk about restorative justice, and I don't entirely bin it or throw it out the window, but I do try to keep it firmly in its place as a tool with context-specific utility, yeah. rather than this is what we must do in order to solve all behavioural problems. You mean, you know, try seeing a society go down that route, good luck to you. So anyway, it's, I mean, I've written 120,000 words. It's written, I'm just trying to carve it down into about 100,000 words. Have you settled on the title yet? I, I'm probably going to call it Running a Room. Running a Room. Um, which was the name of the, 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 the course I've been running for the past three and a half years. It's simply because I think it's one of the most opposite ways you can describe behaviour management. You run a room. You, you know, it, it's, it's not just about forming 30 individual relationships and making all the kids think you're super cool. It's not about getting them jumping on the desk and shouting, no captain, my captain. Nor is it about winning them over with your karate skills a la Dangerous Minds and Michelle Pfeiffer. You know, it, it's something a bit more complex than that. It's about seeing them as individuals, but also as a group. And, and laying down railway tracks for them that makes it easier for them to learn and easier to behave and how you implement crucially maintain and then also uh, make, make sure that people are reminded of these of these these tracks as much as possible it's been a, it's been the easiest thing in the world to write uh, it just it just fell at my fingertips as i wrote it because it's something i've been talking about for years um I, it's a bit more substantial than my previous works and, and it's something i'm very very proud of so hopefully it should be out in a couple of months fingers crossed well, I think we'll all uh, look forward to reading that. Um, it's almost uh, as good as your last book, Craig. <laughs> the truth about teaching. The truth about teaching. 
120,000 words is quite a lot. So uh, you've got a little bit of uh, culling there to do, I'd imagine. But uh, Indeed. Uh, kill, your, kill your children, as they say, but that, wouldn't, <laughs> that doesn't come across very well in a blog, 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 no. blog about no. this. No. So, yeah, um, no, I look forward to that. Well, thanks so much, Tom. Um, and uh, I appreciate your time, and I'm sure the people listening will too. Thank you. My yeah. pleasure. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you again in happier times. Research Ed, Sydney or whatever will, will take place at some point. Can't wait. Absolutely. Cheers, buddy. Take care. Cheers, Tom.